to Borderlines, the podcast dedicated to border-related issues. Uh, we are joined today by uh, Sherilyn Jordan, who is um, an assistant professor and practitioner in counseling with the education department at SFU. Uh, she's also a renowned scholar on broad, a broad range of subjects um, uh, involving intersection between mental health and social justice. And we've invited here, her here today to talk um, about uh, intersectional issues facing um, uh, persons of uh, involving sexual orientation in the immigration context. We want to talk about that generally. I'm Deanna Okinachov, by the way, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Stephen Jorans and Pia Edelman. So welcome, everyone, and thanks for joining us today, Sherilyn. Thank you for inviting me. Um, so maybe to start off, just to talk generally about um, sexual, to, to sort of orient uh, the conversation about sexual orientation in the immigration context, perhaps you, perhaps you can just give us a bit of a, uh, a brief background. Sure. And when we look at the Canadian immigration system in particular, there are several ways that uh, our immigration laws have worked to limit or exclude access to mobility for people who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and I'll broaden the conversation a bit as well to to encompass gender identity and gender expression as well. Um, in terms of family class recognition in immigration law, there were up until 2002, it was impossible for same-sex couples or really anyone who wasn't in a heterosexual marriage to make a family class immigration application. Um, in the mid-90s, through the work of an organization called LEGIT, uh, Canadian Immigration for Same-Sex Partners, and sort of their collaboration with immigration lawyers, uh, there was a possibility of making kind of a, a back backdoor route claim using a humanitarian and compassionate application alongside an independent uh, skilled worker application so that in practice partners of you know same-sex partners of Canadians were able to to use uh, the immigration system to be reunited with the partners and, and settle as permanent residents and that sort of backdoor route remained in place sort of from 93 until 2002 when the immigration system uh, when IRPA was created and same-sex partners were recognized in the family class then. So that's one area where there's been a really significant shift. And then the other area, and this is where I'm, you know, my current work is, is far more active around refugee protection issues. And so we'll see that Canada is a, among a handful of countries that recognize that sexual orientation and gender identity and expression um, are incorporated in the Geneva Convention nexus of membership in a particular social group and so become um, a nexus of persecution that can lead to a refugee claim. Um, that's been true since, the, since 1993 with the Ward decision and then we've seen some, some shifts in recent years in terms of how that protection has been enacted. Do you want to just expand maybe a little on what the Ward decision was? 
Sure. I, <laughs> I, I, this is where I always feel like I need to put in a disclaimer. I am not a lawyer. I, I practice as a counseling psychologist. And so uh, the mental health aspects of, of these issues are, are where I focus. But my understanding as a layperson of the ward decision, it was the, the first time in Canada that uh, it was a claim involving a, a gay man and his right to access refugee protection. And it was a time when uh, sexual orientation was recognized as something that was intrinsic to a human being's dignity. Um, there's still some language within the ward decision that is, is somewhat problematic and legal scholars kind of um, argue about kind of the, the some of the baggage that we've been left with because of the ward decision. But in practice, it's a really important one in the sense that um, this was the, the decision that very clearly articulated that sexual orientation and then that and then later gender identity and gender expression are to be interpreted into membership in a particular social group the geneva convention grounds well so i think an issue then i mean we're going to start with the general immigration context and then the refugee context and something that i think arises both in the family class and in the um, refugee context is the need for LGBTQ people to prove their orientation. It's not something that heterosexual people have to prove that they're straight, but certainly uh, LGBT, um, especially in the refugee context and to a lesser degree in the family context, mm -hmm. have to prove their orientation. I always tell people, especially common law relationships, um, heterosexual, you know, or homosexual that they have or whatever in between that they have to prove that they're not roommates that they're not just cohabitating or cohabiting but that they are in a conjugal relationship and I think it's still generally expected that with an LGBT situation that there will be the extra step taken to rebut what may be a presumption that uh, people who are cohabiting are just roommates or in the refugee context that a claim is fabricated so what are some of the issues that you've seen that arise in terms of this need for or this expectation that LGBT people will prove their orientation? Sure. I think to understand that, I want to kind of take us to conditions that people may face in their country of origin and understand a little bit about what either persecution or, uh, you know, kind of the combination of erasure, so kind of the systematic denial of the existence of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender people, um, and then combined with stigma can create and, and can, how these can then complicate people's efforts to kind of document either their identity or their relationship. So if we look at you know, countries where there are either criminal sanctions or you know, extreme violent intolerance or, uh, for people who in some way, you know, defy or transgress sexual or gender norms, often this form of persecution starts to manifest in people's lives early, you know, sometimes even in childhood. Unlike war or more collective forms of persecution, people face the threat in their own families, uh, sometimes at a very, very young age, and then it kind of gets dispersed out into schools and neighborhoods workplaces so it's this sort of um, both paradoxically very private in the sense of out of the public eye but also very pervasive or distributed 
it impacts people in you know in their everyday lives and so kind of psychologically the way that that can manifest is in a you know an internalized stigma that really dampens people's ability to even speak about their sexual orientation people have may have kind of limited language for describing themselves it also means you know practically for safety reasons people have to cover to be safe um, and so that limits the kinds of documents or evidence that they can have as corroboration mm -hmm. so both their testimony you know if we're talking about refugee claims people need to to kind of narrate a credible plausible claim to their, either their sexual orientation or their gender identity they may have less language to do this or may be impacted quite profoundly by by stigma shame and trauma in their efforts to do so and then in some ways they're you know kind of uh, doubly hampered because then there there isn't sort of the public documentation You've, you've said a lot about sort of normative ideas around gender identity as well in your in your writings, and I think uh, even outside of the refugee context, when you're talking about what a spousal sponsorship is supposed to look like and those sort of those things that are uh, looked for in terms of showing the genuineness of a relationship and the challenges, um, maybe you could just say a bit more about. Sure. Yeah. I mean, implicitly, when when an application is looked at, people have kind of a, a mental sense of what, what's plausible or what's credible. And often those implicit narratives or implicit expectations are based on the experience of heterosexual relationships, heterosexual marriages in the case of kind of family class immigration. Um, and for refugees, it's often based on kind of Western norms of a lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender identity, and these are, you know, in many ways, uh, culturally based experiences and narratives that may or may not make sense outside of kind of a Western context. Um, and so, often, kind of a binary um, look at what that what those distinctions might be as well. As well. Certainly, in terms of in terms of gender. Um, people being expected to sort of hold uh, how do I say, hold an identity that very clearly conforms to one gender or the other or tells a very uh, culturally recognizable story of gender transition. I was born in the wrong body is kind of a narrative that's expected here in, in the West that, may, again, may or may not fit. Similarly, a very clear kind of categorical claim to I am, you know, I am a lesbian or I am a gay man, that doesn't necessarily fit with human beings' very fluid and flexible sexualities, and particularly doesn't fit well if somebody has kind of formed or come into their sexuality under conditions of persecution and erasure. And you mentioned uh, in your paper, you cited in the paper I think you wrote with Rainbow Refugees, mm -hmm. um, a few cases that I just wanted to highlight uh, what was said in them and then ask, is this still the case? So these sure. were from decisions, I think in the early 2000s, where um, one uh, Refugee Protection Division member stated, having observed the claimant throughout the hearing, I do not find that there is anything to be gleaned from the claimant's facial expressions, tone of voice, or is physical that would 
in and of themselves create an impression that this claimant was either homosexual or bisexual. And in another case, a board member said, uh, moreover, it is surprising that the claimant did not have any problems with the authorities, even though his appearance and his artistic and occupational activities over many years might have suge suggested a tendency or orientation other than heterosexual. And then you also mentioned that there was a case where a lawyer had encouraged a claimant who was uh, making a claim based on sexual orientation that she should cut her hair really short so that it was more convincible to the board member uh, that she was, I guess in that case, a lesbian. So as you know, it's tw those cases were early 2000s, it's 2016 now. Is there, are we still seeing language like this or is there a, a general greater education amongst board members? Yeah, not as overtly. And there's been some specific federal court decisions around discretion and the fact that you cannot expect someone to kind of live, you know, be discreet go back into hiding. Um, and so we see less decisions where kind of somebody's appearance not being obvious or not causing the perception of sexual orientation uh, divergence being, you, know, you we just don't see those kinds of overt wordings the way we used to. Um, still very much see, I'd say, misalignment between what board members perceive as um, non-conforming in a <laughs> versus what people experience as, as sort of opening them up to threat because they are non-conforming in their country of origin. So we need to remember that kind of the the gender norms that we live with here in North America are not the gender norms that people live with elsewhere. Um, simply being an unmarried person over the age of 25 in some places gets you, uh, you know, open to suspicion. Um, and board members have not always, you know, I'd say they continue to not fully contextualize people's experience of persecution. Um, and there is still, I'd say, issues around kind of implicitly... Um, expecting some conformity to typical kind of lesbian or gay presentation. Um, people who don't present, you know, in sort of stereotypical ways face more questions and, and more challenging questions. Uh, I've certainly seen that um, bisexual men, bisexual women, uh, people who have been in heterosexual relationships and have children face a higher, you know, higher level of scrutiny and suspicion in the hearing room. Um, and so that, to me, speaks to ways that we have a fairly, um, you know, board members may be coming in with, with a, a notion that, you know, a very categorical understanding of sexual orientation and not understanding that in many places, kind of um, having, you know, having a heterosexual marriage is necessary for safety or that people's experience of sexuality may be fluid enough, uh, you know, that being both heterosexually married and same-sex attracted, you know, coexists. And I know you've, you've talked a lot about the, the, coming, the coming out narrative and sort of normative ideas around that, and I think that maybe you can expand on that a little bit as well. Sure, yeah. So 
in the West, we kind of popularized, and now this kind of travels transnationally through NGOs and websites, but the, this coming out story. And it usually starts with, you know, someone, you know, kind of our hero being quite naive and unaware of their sexuality, moving to a place of kind of recognition, struggling for a while, hopefully, you know, ideally moving to a place that is more friendly and then coming into a, you know, kind of a, a place of acceptance. And I don't want to suggest that this isn't ever people's experience. It can be, but it is a narrative that has been popularized in the West and almost in some ways um, codified as a psychological stage model, you know, in psychology in a way that makes this sort of discovery metaphor that, you know, your sexuality is something that's always been there. You discover it and then you struggle with it for a while and then you figure out how to live with it. Um, a metaphor that is expected in people's stories. And again, this isn't necessarily, you know, it's, it's not a narrative or an expectation that fits well for, for refugee claimants in particular. Um, it's not unusual for someone to, to have experienced some kind of persecution or violent threat because they don't conform to gender expectations or, or um, expectations of the kind of heteronormative family, but not, still not have an identity around that. They may have been in relationships for a long time, but not have formed an identity around uh, their sexual orientation. Um, and so then, you know, they face a threat, have to leave their country and come here, but don't necessarily have an identity story that sounds like a coming out story. Uh, and, and that is a harder story for people to, to articulate, and it's also often seen as somehow less plausible. I'm thinking of a fairly recent claim, and I won't give specific details, but really this person had not told anyone other than rainbow refugee members and one other person. And it was really clear to me when I listened to him speak that he didn't really yet have an identity around his sexuality. He'd had one relationship. It had been very, very secret. And, and um, so when he was in the hearing room, he couldn't really talk about ways that, that this reflected his sense of self. And that's what the board member was expecting. And I, I guess that's uh, in, in terms of the cases that I've dealt with over the years, I think there's two types of cases that I tend to deal with. So there's the ones where the, the perception of the persecuting or the agent of persecution is the most important. So in the sense that what we're, uh, all we really need to show is that the person is perceived to be gay or, or lesbian or whatever it is. So for example, in Uganda, if you're perceived to be gay, you're at risk. It doesn't matter if you actually are gay or not. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of an irrelevant an irrelevant issue in terms of identity. Um, and those cases we're pretty familiar with in terms of they are very similar to the other types of cases that we deal with in the sense that you have objective evidence or you, you get the evidence that you can and, and the person's either believed or not. Um, the cases that I find more challenging are the identity cases and they're the ones that we're talking about now where there may not have been any expression of the identity, there may not, and they, they're not in some ways not that different from some of the cases that we see in other areas, religious identities mm -hmm. or, or other types of identities where it's like, well, 
prove to me that you're really Christian or Jewish or, or whatever it is. And it's, it's a very difficult thing to do in terms of saying, prove your spirituality to me, prove your, your beliefs to me, prove to me who you are, your political opinions. Um, and one of the challenges that I have in dealing with a board member is often we're trying to educate the board member as counsel in terms of this is how you would go about making this decision. This is how you would go about knowing that this person is a genuine refugee. And it's always been a challenge for me in the sense of what is it that a board member can do? What is it that a board member would do? And I understand what a board member shouldn't do. There's a whole bunch of things that you shouldn't do. But if you have somebody in front of you, is there... Are there circumstances where a board member says, well, legitimately, this person is not who they say they are? Uh, or I can reject this claim on the basis of identity? Um, or is it something where when someone asserts an identity, w there is not really a, a, a way through the adjudicative process to look behind that? And, and I. I struggle with that because I don't actually know what the answer is. Is, it, is this something that can be adjudicated? And there are some circumstances where there's very clear indications of fraud on the file, right? But when someone's just asserting an identity in terms of saying, this is who I am, this is what I feel, um, do, you, do you think that can be adjudicated? And if so, if you were a board member, how would you go about rejecting a claim? And, and it's, it's not a frivolous, I'm not saying it in a, it's not a frivolous question because that's often what I need to be able to tell a board member is this is what you legitimately can do. This is what I'm saying you can look at. This is what you can see. And if you're not seeing these things, then you accept the claim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, I'm, I am very say, sympathetic when I hear board members, heard many describe sexual orientation claims as some of the toughest that they face. It's an incredibly intimate part of our lives. It's something we're not used to putting into language. We're certainly not used to talking about it in a really bureaucratic context. Um, and so, and they're working, you know, interculturally, often in sort of a second or third language of the claimant or with an interpreter. So, you know, I mean, it's an incredibly complex task for the board members. Um, can we expect them? We, we, we have a refugee system that says persecution is based on a nexus, on a, you know, it's a harm that you face because of who you are. And, and so we've asked them, we've given them the responsibility of kind of determining their veracity of both that fear of persecution and the nexus on which it's based. I think some of the ways that we can move away from the more problematic kind of questioning of an identity where there is an expectation of a particular kind of story is to recognize and listen for when you know when board members are kind of eliciting testimony listen for some of the ways that harms or feared harms come into people's lives that are not necessarily connected with an identity um, so ways that people may have experienced um, fear in their lives and held back you know, certain behaviors, certain actions, um, their movements because of that fear or sort of a felt sense of being different and therefore um, under threat. 
without giving it a particular name or having a particular story attached to it. So those are some of the things that I would, you know, I would encourage board members to listen for. And as lawyers, you might be sort of asking your, your clients to, you know, describe their story in terms of ways that they've perceived or picked up on fear in their life and what fear has kind of made them do or asked them to do in order to be safe. And you may find that you get a different kind of story than the, so tell me about the first time you felt attraction to a boy kind of question that is often sort of one of the starting questions in a, in a hearing. Is that? Well, I guess one of the things that we, with board members, they're very much trained in the idea of testing credibility. Mm-hmm. So in the sense of, you know, when when you say to a board member, the police arrested me, they then took me to a jail, they tortured me, or they, they interrogated me, whatever the situation might be. So you have people tell that story, and then you go through the different parts of the story. And we know from different types of experience that there are certain parts of those stories that are just not helpful to go into for credibility reasons. An example is torture is a very good example of that. The post-traumatic stress disorder and and trauma make people very unable to, sexual assaults fall into that category. Where we know that the actual events around, but the things around it can be um, fruitful in terms of being able to assess credibility. But the actual events themselves are not all that helpful. And so the, the question... I guess is when we're looking at these cases and when we're talking to board members, when we're looking at the general credibility of the person Mm -hmm. and that a person, if, if a person is generally credible and they then assert an identity, is that where the inquiry ends? And, and that's, and ultimately that's where, because what happens in practice in these cases is that's not only where the inquiry begins, that mm-hmm. is the majority of the inquiry mm-hmm. is around, well, why didn't you kiss him? Well, why wouldn't you kiss him? Well, why wouldn't you have, have asked him out? Why didn't you ask him out? Well, you went to the bar. Well, you knew there was a gay bar. Why didn't you go to the gay bar? Have you been to a gay bar here? And, and like, <laughs> it, it's all of these things that are um, in terms of actual lived identities uh, are irrelevant, but I, I've always questioned at what point because these can be these questions can be done in a uh, an appropriate way and in an inappropriate way. In other words, there's not a right or wrong answer to why didn't you go to the gay bar here? But if your practice, your sexuality was expressed in a way where you spent time in gay bars all the time and you picked up guys, and all of a sudden you stop doing that when you get to Canada. It's not an perhaps not an inappropriate question. There's not a right answer to it, mm-hmm. but to say why why did that change? Why is that different now? Well, it's different because I I don't feel comfortable with Canadian guys or I whatever. I mean, there may be any number of answers that. So I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. But I guess the the challenge that I've always had with these cases is at what point are you crossing the line, and. At what point can a board member say, I don't believe you're gay? And and that's because ultimately board members want to know when I'm when I'm making submissions to them, well, 
you can reject the case in this way. You can't look at this. And so when I say to them with respect to a torture case, you don't get to ask questions about this in this portion because it's, it's not helpful. And in fact, you're going to traumatize the claimant again. And I'll actually put a stop to it. Mm -hmm. So I won't allow a board member to re-traumatize one of my clients. Mm -hmm. And I, I, my struggle is within, within the sexual orientation cases is at what point do I put a stop to it as being mm -hmm. irrelevant? And how do I frame that to the board member in terms of saying, well, this is how you can assess this person's sexual orientation. And it's always been a challenge for me to say, you can assess this person's sexual orientation because I'm not convinced that I could do that. Mm -hmm. And I would have a lot of trouble as a board member to say to somebody, I don't think you're gay. I, I, I would, I never, I don't think I ever have said that to somebody. I mean, I've, I've thought it about certain, you know, certain, certain situations where I'm like, you know, I, you speculate about people's orientation or, or whatever it is in, in certain circumstances. And you're like, oh, well, I'm not surprised that this person came out or whatever it is. And we, we have these discussions in a very informal way. But I would never formally say to somebody, well, I've made an assessment of you. And my assessment of you is that you are straight or that you are gay. It's And, and it's so I, I guess my I, I'll, I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, the UNHCR guidelines for sexual orientation, gender identity decisions very clearly align with the, if you have an otherwise credible claimant, their testimony to being gay or lesbian or transgender should be taken at face value. That this is, you know, if, you, if they are present themselves credibly, there is there should not be an interrogation of the identity claim per se other than to assess their general credibility and that is the direction that the new guidelines that are being adopted by the IRB is going and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we will see a shift away from the very problematic kinds of questioning you're describing where um, you know the identity claim becomes almost the you know the almost the exclusive focus of the hearing and as your questions reflected they often you know it's sort of expectations that people will have a clear identity claim will seek out community will seek out sexual relationships all of these things that are very much embedded in kind of our, our expectations of how lgbt people behave in North America become the template by which people are measured against. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that we're moving away from that towards, um, you know, a, a basis for a hearing that says, if you have somebody who is presenting in a credible manner, their testimony as someone who belongs to uh, you know, whatever their sexual orientation or gender identity is, should be taken as credible. Um, Do you worry that if we go down the path where once an identity is stated, it's or once an orientation is stated, it's not questioned that there will be people who do abuse it, and should that abuse come to light, that the pendulum will swing rapidly the other way? At this point, there's enough kind of in place protecting the system you know, and, and credibility assessment still would involve, you know, tell, you know, 
tell me about your your life experience in your country of origin and tell me about your path to migration how did you decide to you know all of the sort of internal flight alternatives state access to state protection all of those things would still continue to be assessed um, and so I don't think we're going to see a, you know a massive swing towards uh, you know a large number of, of false claims I think what what is important is that we move the hearings away from this really um, you know, kind of suspicious and you know, detailed and in some ways ethnocentric questioning around people's identity. Sorry, just, just on that point, I think one of the things that I've noticed as well is that in the countries where you would have the strongest grounds for persecution of people uh, on SOGI grounds, um, also tend to be the cultures where there would be the greatest stigma against presenting oneself as in, in uh, as a persecuted sexual minority. Um, so, for example, for a Muslim man from a, a very strict country like Afghanistan or something like that to put himself in front of the board and assert that he was gay would be culturally extremely, there'd be an enormous amount of stigma that mm -hmm. the person would need to overcome, um, even if they were, if you were going to present a, a fraudulent claim. And I, I think there's probably a lot of reluctance culturally speaking to to engage in in that type of fraud versus other types of fraud that don't have that necessarily that type of social stigma absolutely um, i think we need to remember that people who are making refugee claims it's not a, a sort of a a one-time act of giving testimony they present themselves in their eligibility interview when they talk to legal aid when they talk to community organizations about getting you know all of sort of the, the system navigation support that they need with their lawyers, uh, you know, and so they're they're recounting their story over and over and over again, um, and so this becomes in in many ways something something that is in and of itself kind of shame and stigma inducing. People are not going to do this lightly, um, and in that when I say the system has lots to protect it already. Those are some of the things that are in place. I'm wondering when we get to some of the specific features of establishing a refugee claim, um, we talked a little bit about the notion of membership in a social group as a concept in general. Mm -hmm. um, maybe you can just talk about that um, a little bit in terms of some of the challenges that a claimant, um, that a claim based on sexual orientation will face. Can you say a little bit more about Sure. Well, it just seems to me that um, the whole notion of membership is based on this like concept of inclusion or exclusion. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about someone where they're talking about um, sexual identity um, and persecution, that mm -hmm. this uh, this there's a there's a fundamental tension behind this concept of ident identifying as being a member of a social group. Yeah, identifying as or being identified as, and certainly yeah, this notion of membership is based on kind of a collective identity that, you know, as, as I've said, not necessarily everyone who faces Soji persecution is going to have a sense of belonging to a community or connecting with that identity. Um, 
and yet that you know right now anyway that is the best possible grounds for someone to use i think there are there are situations where using political opinion as the nexus ground makes a lot of sense if somebody's had sort of a, an activist background um, or has been you know challenging the conditions for for lgbt people in their country in some way um, using political opinion maybe as an either a, an additional ground or as the central ground may make sense but for now the membership in a particular social group is is sort of the the pathway that people need to use and you're right it's not it's not ideal just for our listeners who are not as familiar with refugee law um, in order to be found to be a convention refugee one has to not only be able to show persecution but that there's persecution that's connected to one of the five grounds in the convention and so the one the five two of the five grounds are political opinion and uh, uh, membership in a particular social group in addition to race uh, nationality and race religion nationality uh, and um, so anyway just to clarify for non-people who aren't as familiar with refugee law. And do you want to also just do a quick overview of what the standard of persecution is? So like in the LGBT context, would denial of gay marriage, for example, alone be persecution that uh, meets the threshold to claim refugee status? Certainly. So persecution involves threat and threat based on identity or a nexus ground. Um, it, is distinct from uh, and more extreme than discrimination. So discrimination may be, mean being excluded from protections by the law, um, discrimination in workplaces, discrimination in housing. Persecution becomes threat to, to safety or to the body or to life or to basic human rights. There are situations where um, extensive discrimination and the exclusions that that create can rise to the threshold of persecution. Um, so if someone cannot work, cannot find housing, cannot get medical care, um, you know, there, there are certainly situations where that combination can be looked at and, and, and an assessment made about whether that rises to the level of persecution. But the, the general criteria is that this is a threat to basic safety and life that can be, that is connected to or related to the nexus ground. And I think we've always, I've always found that to be one of the challenges in sexual orientation uh, claims is that there is this gray area between severe discrimination and persecution that in large part depends on the board member that you get. Um, and that you, you have the clear cases, Uganda's clearly on the side of persecution and you'll have other places like Canada where you see discrimination, um, but that generally doesn't rise to the level of persecution or at least not in the whole country. Um, the, uh, it's the in-between countries that, that are very challenging for us. Um, I mean, especially in recent years where at the front end, you need to make a decision as to whether you want to make a humanitarian application or um, a refugee claim. Mm -hmm. um, and I know you've dealt with, you deal with a lot of people in those situations. Um, what, do you want to talk a little bit about the challenges that people face at the front end when they're in those, what I would refer to as the gray area countries, yeah. the, the Mexico's, the, 
Costa Rica. The, I mean, I, I deal a lot with Latin America. Yeah. Um, and a lot of Latin American countries seem to fall into that gray zone. Absolutely. Different shades of gray, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. I mean, you know, countries that are in the gray zone and where conditions are shifting, they're in flux, and where there's often a really big gap between sort of laws on the paper on paper and conditions on the ground and so it is an incredibly difficult situation i think the other thing to keep in mind is that what counts as a safe place is not a universal experience so where refugee lawyers are having to make some pretty tough decisions um you know based on nationality it is important to listen to the particular situation of each claimant and our refugee system is based on that um I, you know i've heard some play you know bogota colombia is a really good example one one person that i've worked with who described it as a city that was a great city to be gay in you know he really you know felt connected there and could thrive there and another man who said it was a terrifying city to be gay in um, he was from a rural area and poor and uh, did not have family support. So we need to remember that safety is something that individuals experience and that it is intersectionally constituted by things like people's class, race, uh, language, education, ability, all of these come factor into whether a person can be safe and whether, you know, whether they are more likely or less likely to be targeted um, and then whether they're gonna have meaningful access to state uh, protection. And so some of the gray zone countries that we've, we've worked with people from Mexico and it's like, okay, if, if you are an upper middle class gay man living in the federal, you know, in Mexico City, you have reasonable access to some protection potentially. But uh, I've also worked from, with, uh, you know, I, a bit, visibly butch lesbian woman who's racialized she's you know afro-mexican uh and there is no way that she you know she was asked to pay protection money by the police that was completely uh, out of her access you know financially impossible for her to pay uh even stepping into a police department uh, police office to to try and make a, a a report was terrifying for her and so I think it's really important to recognize that in these sort of gray zone areas, uh, we need to pay particular attention to kind of the, the social class, race, education, locations of your clients. Um, I think the other thing to kind of keep in mind is some of the ways that uh, non-state actors can be engaged in activities that do count as persecution. So Ecuador is a really good example of this, where it's a country where I, on if you look at the legal protections, it actually looks pretty decent, but there are th over 300 centers that are basically uh, therapy conversion centers. And some of the strategies that they use include forcible confinement, um, use of drugs, uh, violence, you know, assaults, things like that. And so uh, for somebody who does who does not have their family's support and whose family would actually in fact ha arrange to have them kidnapped by one of these centers, that becomes a country uh, you know, that is incredibly dangerous for them and the access to meaningful state protection is something that again would vary considerably based on someone's social class, ability to navigate a legal system, things like that.
Is that the kind of thing you, you oh, have yeah, in mind? No, that's, yeah, that's very, um, and, and I guess my other, uh, um, my other question in terms of the recent changes to the humanitarian, the restrictions on being able mm. to make humanitarian applications, um, and uh, maybe some of the changes that we've seen in, in recent years. You talked about the designated country of origins, um, which obviously is a, is a problem. So the designated country of origin list is a list of quote unquote safe countries um, that the, the government has spoken about doing away with and we're hopeful that we'll see some changes uh, on that level. Um, the, the changes to the humanitarian, uh, access to humanitarian applications is that you can no longer make a humanitarian application while your refugee claim is pending or for mm -hmm. 12 months thereafter unless you fall into some very specific exemption, exemptions. Um, are, are there, uh, and I guess if you could just talk about the challenges with respect to that, but maybe some of the other, uh, um, I know you're very involved in policy work, um, what's your wish list in terms of the, the challenges that we're seeing in the in the refugee and immigration system right now and, and what changes do we need to see? Mm -hmm. So the designated country of origin provision that you mentioned is would be top on my list of things that need to be uh, revoked. Uh, because of a federal court challenge, the DCO designation no longer prevents someone from receiving an appeal, so that you know, the federal courts held up the right to appeal, but it still places people on a very expedited and completely unrealistic timeline. They have 30 days to be ready for their hearing, um, and so that needs to go. And for all the reasons I just mentioned, where, you know, the, sort of these, uh, the gray area countries, the fact that safety and risk and access to state protection are very much individually and in, in, um, intersectionally constituted, it's important that we continue to look at refugee protection on a one, you know, case by case basis and not make sort of a two tiered system based on, on nationality. So yeah, I'm, I'm hoping the DCO regime, I know that there's a willingness in the current federal government to look at it. Um, so I'm hoping that that will be gone when they reform our refugee system, that would give people access to sort of um, you know, far more fair, more reasonable timelines and equitable access to timelines. Um, other wish lists would be the fact that the humanitarian and compassionate application and the PRA, the pre-removal risk assessment, need to be available to everyone and our current system forces people to make a choice very early before they really can fully understand uh, what they're making a decision about. They have to make a decision about which of these pathways to try. And it is, you know, it is a complex legal decision. Um, I, I would like to see humanitarian and compassionate applications continue to be available as sort of a, a secondary recourse so that if someone you know, knows that they are unsafe, but does not meet the criteria for refugee protection still has access based on humanitarian and compassionate reasons. You know, and I've certainly seen, you know, working with several people now who are making H&C applications where it is very clear that they are not going to be safe if they are forced to go back and yet what they are facing does not meet the sort of more narrow criteria of a refugee decision. So if someone is in Canada and let's say, well, either has or hasn't made their uh, refugee claim yet or decided what avenue they're going to choose, 
what sort of service would an organization like Rainbow Refugees provide? Or why should someone consider going to an organization such as that? Yeah, there's several organizations. Rainbow Refugee is Vancouver-based. Uh, there's a group called Agir in Montreal. And Toronto has a few groups, and including the, their 519 Center, that work directly with refugee claimants and other kind of forced migrants who, who are unsafe because of sexual orientation or gender identity through sort of violence. Um, so we start fairly early on with people, sometimes ideally before they even start their claim, get them connected in terms of legal aid and lawyers who are knowledgeable in working with SOGI refugee decisions, because that's, that's an important piece of this, is having lawyers who know kind of what questions to ask, what kinds of evidence will be effective. Um, and then we also work with people in terms of getting them you know, ideally connected with um, some kind of mental health support or group support. So the Vancouver Association for Survivors of Torture has a great weekly group that basically takes people through some of the emotion regulation stuff that can be helpful in the hearing so that they're not kind of completely overwhelmed by anxiety when they're in the room. Um, and then in terms of somebody who may be kind of, um, you know, who doesn't get a positive first instance decision we do continue to work with people right through all of their avenues of recourse. So we we will talk someone through, here's what a federal court, you know, applying for leave for federal court looks like. And a lot of what we do is basically, you know, translate the system for them. It's a pretty bewildering system, but we try and, and make it as plain language understandable as possible um, and work with them on, on making the best decision they can given the circumstances they face. I know that uh, Rainbow Refugee has done a lot of advocacy work on the the SOGI guidelines for the IRB. Are there any, um, you talked a little bit about um, being hopeful about certain changes that might occur. Uh, are there any ones that you wanted to speak about that we haven't already talked about in another context? Yeah, I, I'm excited to see that we actually have them coming. I mean, that's the, that's the, for the first victory that I'll, you know, something that's been, I know we've been asking for them. The Canadian Council for Refugees has been asking for them for over a dozen years. So it's really, you know, important that this initiative has been taken. I was very, um, you know, very, very hopeful after the conversation at the Canadian Council for Refugees consultation where we saw already that they were taking into consideration some of the feedback that they'd gotten from organizations working directly with SOGI refugees. Um, some of the things that I think, you know, the, the fact that there is this emphasis on accepting testimony as, you know, sworn testimony is taken as true and credible. Um, really clearly articulating some of the stereotypes to avoid, so not making the assumption that people will be sexually active every opportunity that they get, not making the assumption that people are gonna rush out to a gay bar the second they arrive in Canada, not making the assumption that people will feel even feel safe as soon as they arrive in Canada. Um, those kinds of things are really clearly specified in these guidelines. Um, there's some good examples around ways of asking questions that are more respectful. Um, 
some things about talking about just awareness to issues, even in interpretation. Uh, I know. Was yeah, there, the issue of interpretation is discussed. That was an area where we'd like to see a bit more. And it, the other thing to keep in mind is the guidelines are important, but will only be effective if there if there's good good training. Um, if these guidelines are incorporated also into the hiring practices. So there needs to be questions right in the interviewing process about you know, seeing what kinds of beliefs people bring around sexual orientation or gender identity into their work. Um, and then, yeah, good training and then good follow-up afterwards. You know, um, there is a huge range in how board members handle these decisions. Some are extremely sensitive, respectful, savvy, um, and others highly problematic. And so the guidelines will only get you so far. <laughs> so I think I only have maybe one or two last things to ask. And the first, I'm still having trouble wrapping my head around the uh, the Refugee Protection Division, going back to what Peter and you were saying, not, uh, or having to take immediately at face value someone asserting a certain sexual orientation. So maybe, point me to where the flaw in my concern would arise in that let's say someone's coming from, I think there's something that was in your one of the papers you provided, 78 or 80 countries where it's still illegal to be gay. Mm-hmm. And what is to stop if we both, ex- if we accept that sexual orientation claims shouldn't be questioned and that there's no, there also shouldn't be an expectation of a, a coming out or a publicizing of one's orientation an unscrupulous, say, representative telling anyone from Saudi Arabia or one of the other, you know, Uganda or one of those other countries, uh, oh, you want to stay in Canada, just say you're gay. It's a private refugee hearing. You just have to say that. And then it will be assumed that you're at risk in your home country. Um, where's, is there a flaw in my thinking? I don't do the, I mean, you mentioned yeah. there are other credibility concerns I, I, that would arise. Yeah, I think it's important to recognize that people are asked to present a narrative at several stages. And then what's looked at in terms of an evaluation of credibility is, is there kind of reasonable um, consistency in that narrative? Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it's not just that what they write on paper will be taken at face value. There is still a, you know, a, an opportunity to question what, what I think it, the important shift that I would like to see is away from you know, a questioning that holds under suspicion the identity and then expects a particular performance of that identity. And instead, a move towards understanding that if somebody has been able to sort of sit down and talk with a lawyer in a way that, that you know, produces a narrative and then can speak about that in a way that's reasonably, you know, connected, uh, consistent, that that be seen as credible testimony. Because regardless, they're going to need to provide a narrative of how they experienced persecution, where the fear came from, and yeah. that gives a ground to test credibility without drilling down to the identity per se. It's the fear of persecution narrative that that should be the focus of the hearing, 
Okay, and I understand that persecution is tied to an identity, but what has happened now is that the identity assessment becomes 90% of the hearing. There should be a shift to, it's the, the fear, and that fear is, is subjective, but there, there are sort of objectively ver objectifiably ver verifiable uh, you know, country conditions or evidence to, to support that. That's where the attention should be in the hearing. And it may be that that fear of persecution, you know, we have to remember that it may be forward-looking, but people will have experienced that in some kind of lived or embodied way. They'll have felt and known, it's not safe for me to talk about this. Or, um, I had to limit where I went or who I saw. Those kinds of things are, are I'd say, um, uh, a smart and reasonable way to kind of conduct a hearing around sexual orientation, gender identity, persecution, rather than this, you know, the current practice, which is much more around, you know, tell me who you first had sex with, tell me when that happened and how old were you were. I mean, I think we see similar challenges in religious claims, for example, where mm -hmm. you say to somebody, well, uh, are you Christian? And the person says, well, yes, I am Christian or I'm not Christian. Um, I, I think it's not a question of questioning that assertion of faith, but people, you still need to articulate your practice or your experience of Christianity. And that's where we see uh, the potential for significant inconsistency. So, for example, if you have somebody who's a university professor and has speaks and reads and writes six languages and says to you, I'm a Christian, but I've never read the Bible, that's a very difficult, uh, um, or it's difficult to understand. But that doesn't mean that you can't be an illiterate uh, villager from a, from a, 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 a remote region of a, of a country and be a very devout Christian without being able to read and write. And so being having read the Bible or even having direct access to the Bible, I mean, for centuries was not part of the Christian faith. Um, and so when you, uh, it's, it's a question of context and consistency within that context. And so I, I don't think it's as simple as simply saying, and that's when I say the social stigma really comes into it, because it's not just a question of the Saudi Arabian saying, I'm gay, it's a question of saying, how are you gay? What does being gay mean to you? What is the what is your experience of that? And there's not a right or wrong answer, but there's an enormous amount of social stigma for um, you know a young man from Saudi Arabia who's a devout Muslim to go into great detail about whatever that means for him, mm -hmm. right? And and that that I, and I think that there's not there's not a right or wrong answer, but you still need to provide a narrative of when did you realize what did what 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 is that what does this mean what is your um, and why are you at risk and I think that's where yeah. you talk about the persecution mm -hmm. often it's the perception um, and that's where I say the easier claims for me to deal with are not the identity claims the 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 easier claims to deal with are the perception of the persecutor mm -hmm. claims mm -hmm. my dad thinks I'm gay. And he's going to kill me. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the which is a very common or, or not an uncommon narrative in the sense that my family is going to engage in an honor killing to rid the family of the blight that is me. Mm -hmm. um, and whether or not I actually am gay doesn't matter. What matters is that that narrative is true. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, um, I think the other thing is that the presumption of truth in a refugee claim is not specific to sexual orientation claims. 
all cases, so that we have case law from the from the courts that goes back many, many years that says that you presume what somebody is saying under oath is true, unless there's mm-hmm. some contrary reason. So there is a presumption in favor of the claimant in any claim. So this isn't specific to sexual orientation claims. I think it's important to underline that this isn't a, yeah. a special exemption for, for SOGI claims. It's that there has been um, a, a practice that's developed with certain board members that has undermined those presumptions that have that ought to apply to any case, mm-hmm. whether it's a political opinion case or religion case or, or whatever, and that we've seen these, and we see it in the religious cases with these ridiculous ridiculous tests. Well, no, with the Christian cases, and you have these, these tests that are done mm-hmm. of like what, you know, well, what does Second Corinthians actually say about blah, blah, blah? And it's like, well, most Christians here don't know that. That doesn't make them any less Christian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are, those are some of the, uh, um, there, there's been some very strong criticism from the court in, in the context of those cases. And often mm-hmm. they're the ones that I see as being the most similar in some ways because it's so personal it, and, it's, and it's often very internal. Mm-hmm. In, in the sense, it's not something that's shared publicly, like yeah. race or, or uh, race is something that's perceived by the agent of persecution. Mm-hmm. It's not, it, I mean, it can in some circumstances be an, an identity, but in, in most cases, it's also something overt. Um, and, and so in these, uh, um, in these cases, we often, we do have that challenge. And I think that these, the guidelines are hopefully going to be very helpful in giving us a tool to educate board members to to work around or to bring back the presumptions that should have been there the whole time i think that's a really good way to to understand it that these are these are ways of understanding refugees testimony that are are granted to all refugees as part of refugee protection this presumption that you are telling the truth if you provided sworn testimony you know and then can speak about it in a credible way rather than this sort of presumption of suspicion, basically. And if I'm not mistaken, the jurisprudence is pretty clear that mere criminalization of uh, non-conforming acts doesn't constitute persecution per se, that it still will go back to the lived experience and the evidence, like the personal testimony and the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the narrative of persecution. Yeah, so there has to be straight off the books. Yeah, there has to be both the, you know the objective evidence of persecution and the subjective fear, and that subjective fear is forward looking. So, you know, even if somebody is is here and doesn't have sort of a lived experience of their sexuality in their home, sorry, their sexual orientation in their home country, you know, perhaps has only come into that here in Canada, they can still sort of understand what the implications would be for them if they were forced to return. Well, what there's that it? awkward reality that we haven't cleaned up our own criminal code. That our criminal code still prohibits uh, certain, uh, certain sexual acts that are perfectly legal and have been found to be constitutional. But, mm-hmm. And they're going through the criminal code now to identify them, aren't they? Yeah, that's my understanding. One would hope. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, made, they, there have been discussions about that, but uh, you know, I take promises with a grain of salt. Yeah, can you give us a sense of the timeline around the guide, the new guidelines for the IRB? My understanding is that uh, I, well, I know they released 
a very preliminary draft to community stakeholders uh, back in September. Um, and then are working to, you know, to provide a second draft of that early in January and there'll be opportunity for more input then and then starting training with it in the spring uh, with the expectation that they would be implemented by the fall. That's my understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, well, um, unless there are any final comments from everyone, I just wanted to, I want to thank you very much for coming. It's been a very interesting conversation. Yeah. And, uh, we hope to have you back perhaps once we have guidelines and oh, we can be great. Uh, talk yeah. through those as well. Super, thank you. And I suppose we should thank you for coming a second time after <laughs> yes. we, after we, we failed. Yeah. We, we actually did record this once with Sherilyn uh, a few months ago and um, it, in, in our early uh, technical are grown exactly yeah no worries <laughs> managed to delete yeah. <laughs> technical difficulties are something i fully understand <laughs> no it's been a great conversation thank you thank you for joining us on the borderlines podcast you can find us at borderlines.ca you can also find us on itunes stitcher and soundcloud please do leave us a review it does help others to find the podcast Thank you very much to Robin Bayer and Funk in the Trunk for our music and to our sound tech, Macaulay Higgins. Mm -hmm.